If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 55. Psalm 55, we're continuing to look at David's struggles uh, that he faces or faced in his life. In fact, this whole entire section is a really an autobiography of David's struggles and how he responded to those. In Psalm 54, David had dealt with traitors. In fact, you see this in verse 3. It says, For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Now, who those exactly were is unknown, but it seems to be with those within their community were turning on David. But Psalm 55 takes a more personal note where David deals with a traitor that was his friend. And not only a friend, but one that he worshipped the Lord with, one that he shared fellowship with. It's very similar to what we have already seen in Psalm 41, verse 9, where we read these words, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And David struggles uh, with this traitor that would betray him are simply a picture and a type of Jesus' struggles that he would face when it was Judas that betrayed him. And we see the, in Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 different angles of how David handled this that also give us great insight to what the Lord Jesus suffered on our behalf. Now, who was this friend that turned and on David and, and was a traitor. Well, as when we looked at Psalm 41 and we now look to Psalm 55, I believe it was the same person, Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was David's counselor. And I know this may be review for, for many of us, but I think it's important just to set the context in 2 Samuel chapter 15. In verse 12, you see this description of Ahithophel. It says, and while Absalom, that is David's son, was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people were with Absalom kept increasing. So early on in Absalom's uh, conspiracy to overtake the throne of David, he, um, from the very beginning, brings in David's most trusted counselor, a man that they described his word was like hearing the word of God. That was Ahithophel. And early on, Absalom brings him in, and I think that a guy like Ahithophel was just simply weighing the scales. Who's going to prevail? And he thought that Absalom would prevail, which indicates that Ahithophel did not know the promises of God to David. You see in chapter 17 of 2 Samuel, another description in verse 1, it reads this, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king... So not only does Ahithophel desert David and begin to counsel Absalom so that Absalom may take the throne from David, but actually Ahithophel's plan, which as you read the narrative, would have worked, 
is, is pure treachery. He will now not only take the side of Absalom, but he himself will be the one, according to his plan, strike down David and kill him. I would say that's betrayal. That's what David's facing with. And if it wasn't for the Lord's intervention, uh, David certainly would have died. Ahithophel's advice was the superior advice, but the Lord intervened and confused them. Now, this is the context where we find David. His countrymen have turned on him. His son has turned on him. Ahithophel, his most trusted friend and counselor, has turned on him and even devises a plan to kill David. Again, that is betrayal. So let us hear the word of God. In Psalm 55, it begins with the musical instruction to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the waging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruins is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But is, is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend? We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death still over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul and safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was as smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the word of the Lord and may he bless it. This divides into several easy to see sections just simply by reading it. You can see how
the tone of verses change as you flow throughout this. And it, it just begins with a simple plea to the Lord in verses 1 through 3. David goes to the Lord, it says in verse 3, because of the oppression of the wicked. Specifically, wicked people, wicked forces, wicked men, and a wicked friend have risen to hold David down, to remove him from king, and to kill him. And so this drives him to the Lord. And in verses 1 and 2, he issues three imperatives. And an imperative is a command, but we should see this not as, as if David's commanding something of the Lord, but it does show us something of the urgency of his prayer in that he issues these three imperatives. And these three imperatives rattle off in staccato-like fashion where he says this, Give ear, attend to me, and answer me. He's basically saying, listen, pay attention, and respond. That's how he begins the prayer, is, Lord, listen to what I have to say, pay attention to it, and then will you respond to my prayers? It's in desperation. It's where he's in fear of his life that he's pleading with the Lord to listen to him. Now, to listen to the, for the Lord means for the Lord to respond. It's not as if the Lord is unaware. It's not as if the Lord is ignorant to David's pleas or that David has to say certain things. Rather, actually, through the circumstances often because of David's sin being the root, this is the means that the Lord uses to drive David to his knees to prayer. And it's often the same means that the Lord uses in our life to drive us to prayer as well when we face difficulties in life. So how do we understand such language to come to God with such boldness of these requests? Well, you see what he he, he, he couches it in this. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Uh, he's asking the Lord for mercy. He's asking the Lord for grace. He's asking for something he doesn't deserve. In essence, David, in, in so many words, is simply saying, please, Lord, see what I'm going through. And relieve me of this according to your mercy. He moves from there to describe his state. Remember, this is him still praying to the Lord. After asking the Lord to hear him, he describes to the Lord what he's going through. Very detailed. He says, for... They drop trouble on me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. In other words, he is telling the Lord, I'm in trouble. There's people that have arisen against me and want to seek my life. Look what he says. He speaks of it overwhelming him. He says, my heart is in anguish within me. And you, you know this, is that when you read the word heart in the Old Testament, that's not talking about that organ inside of us that's palpitating and pushing blood through our whole system. What it is speaking of is the inner and the whole and the complete person. And when he says, my heart is in anguish, 
What he's saying is, I am overwhelmed. And that word here, what we see of this being overwhelmed, which he says in verse 5, when he writes, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. The word overwhelm means to cover something or it can be used to conceal something. So when he speaks of his heart being in anguish, terror coming upon him, fear and trembling upon him, and horror overwhelming him, it's as if he's saying, I am completely covered in fear and trembling. This is an amazing statement from a battle-hardened man such as David. And we see this in, in David's Psalms over and over again where he's facing death that's making him tremble. The guy that, that could catch a lion by its beard and kill it. That David is struck with fear. Look what he says in verses 6 and 8. In this prayer, being honest to God, after he describes his fear, he says, if I could escape, I would escape this. If there was a way out, if I could be a dove and fly away, that's what he says, I would do it. If I could find shelter, I would, I would go there. If there was a place in the wilderness where I could go and hide, I would go and hide. But David can't run and David cannot go and hide. In fact, his prayer actually demonstrates that he's willing to stay and trust himself to the Lord. David could just not escape from his lot in life as king of Israel, the man through whom the Messiah would come. And David was not free just to check out of life. And so he knows this. And so he doesn't trust in himself. He doesn't trust in his ability to hide and run, but rather he trusts in the Lord. And after describing his plight, he goes into an imprecatory part of the psalm. Remember, when we pray out an imprecation of, uh, or we see that in the psalms, imprecatory psalms are psalms of curse. And... We've dealt with many of these. They, they oftentimes make people uncomfortable, but nonetheless, they're, they're the Word of God. And the language comes out very strongly. The first word, destroy, that he says is he's calling for them to be destroyed, and specifically, that they would be swallowed up by the earth. Now, why do I say that? Because this word, destroy, is the same word that you find of you sometimes translated swallowed up, but you, you specifically see this in Numbers chapter 16, verse 30, where we read, But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down to alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. I think what David's referencing is that very verse. Those that would oppose God's kingdom. 
May you open the earth, those that that would despise you, and may you swallow them up. May you destroy them. Again, that seems like an uncomfortable thing. When was the last time in your prayers you said, Lord, would you just open the earth up and swallow my enemies? I didn't hear that at Wednesday night's prayer meeting. But yet David, David prays that, and he prays it often in the Psalms. Not only that, he says, divide their tongues. Now when you, you hear that phrase, divide their tongues, what does that remind you of? Babel. You look at Genesis in chapter 11 in verse 17, we see this same idea there. Of the, or in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. Let us divide their tongues. Now, why does God divide their tongues at Babel? Well, at Babel, if you remember, they're building this large tower that will reach the heavens. They're all united and they begin to forget about God and take on their own agenda opposing God. And so what does God do to prevent them from doing that? He divides their tongues. And so what he's simply asking in this prayer is this, is will you stop them from going forward against your plan? That's a great insight for how we understand an imprecatory psalm or an imprecatory prayer. Those that are being prayed against in that sense are actively opposing the will of God with violence. That's what's driving that type of prayer from David. Because if you were to oppose David... You are actually opposing God. David, as a sinful man as he was, was God's man that God chose. The man that he would bring his son according to the flesh through. And so when he says, destroy them, earth swallow up, divide their tongues, prevent them from going forward... It's a prayer to destroy their plans. It's a, it's a prayer to destroy anything that would oppose God's kingdom. He describes them in verse 10 and 11. Day and night they go around it on its walls and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. In other words, The group that is opposing David are truly oppressing the people through uh, unjust ways of practice. And you see it in the marketplace. They're taking advantage of people. They're they're oppressing people and they're uh, using fraudulent means to do so. That's their character. And so what is David simply doing when he describes them and he says that they would be destroyed? What's he doing in an imprecatory psalm? David is asking that the just God would judge them because they oppose his kingdom. 
David's kingdom is a promised kingdom. Now, think through this for a second with me. On the one hand, David the man, just like you and I, is facing persecution from people and is asking for deliverance. That's something we can relate to, right? He's facing suffering. He's facing betrayal. That's David the man. But then there's also David, the guy that's been promised the eternal throne, that's a prophet of God, that is the king of Israel, that is within God's will, also praying at the same time. And we have to balance those two things out in this prayer and also understand them in our own prayer life. We face different things. I don't think any of us are going to face anything that David faced because none of us are the king of Israel. None of us have that on our shoulders. But we do face real circumstances in life. We do face things with people. How, how, do, we, how do we look at those circumstances in our lives through the lens of God's kingdom and what God is doing? And so how should this guide our prayers? Let me ask you this. Will Christ's kingdom be, ever be defeated? No. Will Christ's kingdom be assaulted? Yeah. Does the church face persecution? Yes. That means the people of God will face persecution through wicked, powerful people. That means people with a face and a name, just like you and I, face it every day. Our prayer is that the Lord would bring about repentance to those that would do this or that the Lord remove them. We would pray that the Lord would make their plans fail. We would pray that our, our God would do what is just and do what is right. That's what drives our prayers when we look at persecution against wicked, evil people, because there's really, truly wicked, evil people out there. Lord, bring them to repentance, or Lord, wipe them from the face of the earth, because they're harming your children. And if they could, they would harm us. So Lord, bring them to repentance, or Lord, remove them. That's what David's asking. And that's an appropriate prayer for you and I to pray for those that are opposing the kingdom of God. David moves from a group look at this to get to personal. He says this in verse 12. This describes his personal pain. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. I'm okay with an enemy coming at me. I, I know that's coming. We, we expect an enemy to come at us. He says, it's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my 
familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. You see, David, just like you and I, we, we expect and we could see an enemy coming. We expect that. But here it's a friend. And notice how he describes this friend. He's a companion. That means he's an intimate friend. He's a close friend. Think of how we, we use the term, this is my best friend, or this is one of my best friends. And that's basically what he's saying. He's speaking of his, his close friend. He says he's a familiar friend. It's not simply re- repeating the same thing. It's one that he was around often, but it, it, it's, it has a slight nuance that there was affection shown to one another. So he's around, he's a friend that's around him often, and they're affectionate with one another. He goes on to say and uses this, we made sweet counsel together. This is a word that's oftentimes used in water that turns sweet. It literally means to cause a sweet taste. But what does that mean? It means simply, we had really good times together. We enjoyed being around one another. You can think of friends that were together that would laugh with one another and felt comfortable being in one another's presence, and they looked forward to it. That's what he's talking about. We made sweet counsel together. That's what it's describing is someone that you enjoy being around. He says, we walked in the throng. And what does that mean? He's simply saying, we together with all of God's worshipers walked together in worshiping God. So not only a close friend, but it was a friend that he shared the Lord with, communed with, worshiped with. You can imagine they probably had maybe even theological discussions together. David's betrayed by this one. And that took him by surprise. With an enemy, your guard is up, but with a friend, you're you're not expecting it. Julius Caesar was not expecting Brutus to come with the knife. It hurts to be betrayed by a friend more so than an enemy, doesn't it? Yet it still hurts with an enemy, but with a friend, you not only are betrayed, but here's where it becomes so painful, is if an enemy betrays me in some way, I don't lose anything. They were already my enemy. But when a friend betrays you, you lose something very close that can't be bought. You lose the most personal thing you can lose. And doesn't that affect other relationships? Certainly must have with David. We have to understand something. There's a difference between betrayal and opposition. You can have a friend oppose you on something without betraying you, right? Sometimes we need to be opposed. Just in David's life, I want you to see in David's life, an illustration of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, 
Nathan, who was also a counselor to David, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Nathan brings a word from the Lord to David and opposes David to his face and says, you have done evil and the Lord is going to bring pain upon you for it. Did David, or excuse me, did Nathan oppose David? Yes. Did Nathan confront David and did he do it gently? Yes, he confronted him, but he didn't do it gently. He laid it out there for him. But did Nathan betray David? No. Nathan was the best friend that David could have had. And so it's amazing how David responds when he's opposed is by repentance. And David was a man of God. David understood the difference. And so when Ahithophel betrays him and quite literally wants to kill him, David responds with prayer that the Lord would take him out. Notice in verse 16, after he describes this treachery, he says in verse 16, but I, that is in contrast That's in contrast to Ahithophel. He says, but I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Absolute confidence in God's salvation and deliverance of his life. He says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. I think that's an interesting phrase because if you look at the the previous verse in, in verse 10, He describes the treachery of those that would betray him. Day and night, they go around it on its walls. And that is a picture of that they're constantly practicing injustice. They're constantly going against me. And so if they're constantly going against David, David says this, I'm going to constantly pray. As they're constantly working iniquity, morning, evening, and noon, I'll be lifting my voice up to the Lord. As much as they will oppose David, David will pray all that much harder. What a lesson for us. He says in verse 18, He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from old. Notice the confidence David has. He has confidence in the Lord to be a just God. He trusts that the Lord will fulfill his promise. Now let me ask you this. Again, I am not going to compare our situations to David's situations, but nonetheless, I think that in many ways we can relate to David. If we can't relate to David, then the Psalms have no use for you and I. 
when you face trials, are you reminded of the promises of the Lord? Think about this for a second with me. When faced with financial setbacks, do you remember that the Lord says that he will always provide for you? When facing doubt and lack of assurance, do you remember that the Lord will keep those that he has bought? Maybe when struggling with past sins and the idea, can God forgive me, do you remember that he who is in Christ has no condemnation? When we face struggles in our life, do we remember those promises of the Lord and take confidence in them? And notice where David, David gives a theological reason for this. At the end of verse 19, he says, He who is enthroned from of old. That is a rich and deep, profound theological point. Two things are stated there. The first is he is enthroned. And what does it mean he is enthroned? That he is king? That he rules? That he is sovereign. It means that God is absolutely ruling over all things. And then the phrase, of old. Sometimes you see it translated this way, ancient of days. And what it means is this, is that God eternally is. So put it together. Enthroned of old. God eternally rules over all things. God has been ruling over all things from eternity. God will be uh, ruling over all things for eternity. There's never a point where God's not ruling. There's never a point where God is off of his throne. There's never a time where God is not sovereign. And to state that God is eternal, I know that we, we grasp that and we confess that God is our eternal God, but there's something about an eternal rule that we have to recognize. An eternal rule means this, is that it's an unchanging, immutable rule. What God has decreed cannot be altered. What God has planned will not be changed. Whatever God has planned in eternity will come to pass. You see, this little nugget that David gives us here of theological truth is the basis of his confidence in the Lord. The Lord said to David, I will give you an eternal throne. Only an eternal God can do that. And Only an eternal person can fulfill that. David knew the Messiah would come from him. Or through his line. Here's our great comfort in this, is it speaks of our eternal, unchanging, immutable, all-powerful God. His rule is forever. What he has planned in eternity will happen without change, without alteration. Nothing will stand in its way, not even Ahithophel, not even Judas. You can take all the bad guys throughout human history. None of them will accomplish their plan. God's plan stands because he is enthroned of ages of old. He is the ancient one. 
God is not affected by what is going on around us. God is not changed by what is going around on around us. He is eternal. God does not change. God does not alter his plan. What we experience in life is his unfolding providence, unfolding exactly as he planned in eternity. God's plan will not fail. Yet David does what with that knowledge? David just say in a fatalistic way, ah, it's gonna ha- whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God's already got it planned. No. He prays. He prays to the Lord. A bedrock foundation of God's sovereignty drives God's people to prayer, not inactivity. We see that all the way through the Bible. Did Paul understand God's sovereignty better than us? Yes. Paul did what constantly? Prayed. Did Moses understand God's sovereignty? But he prayed. Did Jesus understand the sovereignty of God? How often do we find Jesus tucking away to a quiet place so that he can pray? The eternal, unchanging, immutable, all-powerful God that has decreed all things that will happen, that knowledge drives us his people, to pray to him. And if he wasn't those things, then we're praying to a, to a God that changes on a whim. We're praying to a God that's affected by things. We're praying to a God that could maybe change his mind. And if he could change his mind, that means he could change whether he loves you. That means that he could change whether you are forgiven. Do you see that how that little nugget of truth David throws in there is such a great comfort to us in our assurance of faith? That the God who promises is the God who keeps those promises. David goes on to say how this companion goes against corporately the people, a corporate betrayal. He says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Not only was David betrayed, but when David was betrayed, so were all of God's people. And I want you to note this here. When one of God's chosen people are attacked, it's something that we all feel, and it is an assault on the church itself, and it is an assault on Christ. And so then, that should then also likewise drive us to what? Prayer. Lord, bring repentance on this person or remove them. May the earth swallow them up. David then instructs in verse 22. He says this, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And David calls us to do what he just did in this 
verse 22. If you could summarize everything that has taken place from verse 1 to verse 21, it was this. David was casting his burden upon the Lord. And now David, after he has cast his burden upon the Lord, we saw those imperatives, uh, attend, listen to me. I I would run away if I could. Uh, I'm being attacked by enemies. Things are really bad. That is David casting his burden on the Lord. So what does it mean to cast our burden upon the Lord? It means actually taking our burdens to the Lord. And you you see the same language in 1 Peter, where Peter instructs the church in this where he says in verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. We have a good God. We have a God that loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. We can take our burdens to him. Notice what David writes, and he will sustain you. That is, he will lay hold of you, and he will not let you go. He says that the righteous will never be moved. And that word moved, it, it, it could be used of this as like falling off a balance beam. You feel like you're going to fall, but the promise is this, is the Lord will not allow you to fall. He will keep you. He will sustain you. Remember the context. David is saying this truth of God about God's people. God will hold them. God will keep them. But yet David's finding himself in the situation where it looks bad and he thinks he might die. So it has to mean something more than you'll never experience bad things in life. And so the Lord will keep you through them. Even if in those bad circumstances you draw your last breath, the Lord will not permit the righteous to be moved. He will hold them until He brings them home. That is the greatest promise and comfort we can have in all of Scripture. That if the Lord has you, he will keep you until you draw your last breath and your heart beats its final beat. If God is immovable and you are in him, the promise is this, you will be immovable. He will hold you to the end. He gives a final imprecation here where he says, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, saying that that God is going to destroy them. But look at how he ends. But I will trust in you. You David expresses sorrow over betrayal and sets an example for us and how we can likewise respond when we're betrayed. We see the honesty of his emotions before the Lord in prayer. We see his desire for justice and how that is balanced by a desire for God's kingdom. But yet this psalm here also shows us something greater than how we deal with personal treachery and suffering. 
See, while this all happened to David and literally happened to him, historically it happened in the space-time continuum, David faced these things. But it also was to point to something greater that would happen to the greater son of David, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us what Christ endured for us. It reminds us that Christ, the Son of God, became man and faced the horrors of the cross because of a betrayal. Judas was the catalyst. Judas was the one that Jesus had sweet counsel with and was a friend. He was one of the twelve. He walked with Jesus for three years, sat under Jesus' teaching, And it was him that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what David experienced was just simply a type of what Christ would experience, but in its fullest sense, because David didn't go to the cross. David was kept. But the father did not spare his only son as he spared David. You see, Christ was betrayed and handed over to the wrath of God so that you and I might not have to be. Christ was forsaken of the Father so that you and I would not have to be. Christ dealt the pain of that betrayal Uh, the greatest form of betrayal known to man so that we would not be betrayed on that final day so that we would not have to face what Christ faced. So as we see this psalm, we remember, boy, we have a great high priest that has endured far more than we ever will, and he's a great high priest that we can take our concerns Two, because he has experienced them in their fullest. When we read this psalm, let it just be drawn to worship our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was betrayed on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and how he endured suffering on our behalf. We thank you for this example uh, that took place in David's life and how it teaches us to respond by trust, not in vengeance, but trusting ourselves to you. Father, we pray your grace upon us that we would be reminded of the, the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of other Christians and that we would be encouraged to remember that you are the sovereign Lord that is in control of all things. We pray that these psalms would ignite our hearts to worship and be a means of comfort for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.